Well, good morning, everyone. It is very good to see you. Um, I'll tell you, as I told the first service, I mentioned in the back of the bulletin, but I did want to just take a moment to thank you on behalf of my family for the love and support that you've <coughs> given us in recent weeks. It's been a difficult loss, and as I've told uh, many people who've asked how, we do it, how we're doing, I would say that every day is kind of a, a, a new kind of hard, <laughs> but God is faithful, and uh, you have helped uh, lighten the burden along the way, so we are very, very grateful. There's still a lot of healing that needs to take place, but it just takes time, and we are trusting the Lord to bind up the brokenhearted as he promised. We also know that Jesus was a man of sorrows, right? He was well acquainted with grief, so we are assured that he understands our pain, and uh, we also know that he's the source of our healing. So our hearts are broken, but it is well with our soul, and the Lord is faithful to uh, bring us to where we need to be and uh, remind us of those truths. So thank you for being a part of that. This morning, we're going to look at the, the life of Lazarus as uh, one of the life-changing encounters with Jesus. And as I've looked through this, I've realized how important of an account this really is. It kind of sits at the climax of John's gospel. Everything has been building up to this point. If you're a fan of the symphony, this is the part in the musical piece where your hair kind of stands on end. If John were a conductor, he would be up on his toes calling every instrument to their loudest crescendo. It's important to kind of understand the, the, this event in the context of things that have preceded it because it helps us understand its significance. There were two occasions immediately preceding the event with Lazarus where the religious leaders picked up stones in order to kill Jesus, to take care of him once and for all. The first occasion came when they asked Jesus if he was greater than their father Abraham. Because according to the Jews, there was no one greater than Abraham, right? He is the father of the Jewish nation. He is the one through whom the whole Jewish lineage begins. And so Jesus responds very simply and says, before Abraham was, I am. In other words, I was in the beginning and Abraham only exists because of me. Jesus is clearly claiming to be God, even referring to himself in that passage as I am. If you'll think back to the Old Testament when Moses was being sent by God to uh, release the Israelites out of bondage, he asked God, who shall I tell them is sending me? And God said, tell them that I am has sent you. Jesus uses the very same name to identify himself, and as if there were any doubt as to what he was claiming, he removes all doubt in the next event when he says explicitly, I and the Father are one. In other words, when you see me, when you see Jesus, you see God. I and the Father are one. And they knew, trust me, they knew what this meant. Because they picked up stones in order to kill him. And Jesus, in that second event, asked the question, so for which of my good works do you intend to kill me? And they responded, oh, it's not for any of your good works. It's for blasphemy. For you are claiming to be equal with God, and they are exactly right. That's precisely what he was doing. And in this next event involving Lazarus, he will lay that claim to be true by doing what only God can do. 
So before we look at that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come to you this morning, we recognize how easy it is for us to be blinded to the obvious. We many times read Scripture and we just think, how could they not know? How could they not see? And yet many times we're no different than they are. So Lord, I just pray specifically for those in the room this morning, myself included, that you would, call, you would cause the, the, the scales to fall off of our eyes. And whatever is inhibiting us from seeing the truth of who you are, that that obstacle would be removed and would be plain as day this morning. That we would see the truth of who you are and that truth would transform our life. Would you do that in your grace and mercy as we open up your word? And we pray this in your name. Amen. So if we will, turn to John chapter 11. John chapter 11, if you're not already there, if you'll begin reading with me in verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, the illness is not unto death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going there again? Bethany was kind of a home away from home from Jesus, for Jesus, and, and Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus were some of his closest friends. To my knowledge, the Bible doesn't mention anything about parents for Mary and Martha and Lazarus, so very likely Lazarus was the sole provider for he and his sisters. He took care of Mary and Martha, and I think that's one of the reasons why this illness is of such significance to them. They need him. They love him. And since he was a good friend of Jesus, then maybe there was something that he could do. So they sent a messenger to Jesus so that he would know that Lazarus was sick. And when Jesus heard the news, he responded to the messenger and simply said, the sickness is not unto death, but it's for the glory of God. What Jesus is saying here, is that death is not the end of the story. God's glory is the end of the story. And for all we know, the messenger leaves at this point with what sounds like hopeful news that will not end in death. It will not lead into death. But in all likelihood, by the time the messenger gets back, Lazarus has already died. And in the meantime, Jesus waits an additional two days before he leaves with his disciples. And I'm thinking, based on what's preceded this event, the disciples were hoping that they wouldn't go back to Jerusalem, that Jesus would just send his best wishes. But when, because when Jesus tells them, we're going to go to Jerusalem, they object. <laughs> they protest. The, the religious leaders have already tried to kill Jesus twice. Why, why would they tempt fate? Returning to Jerusalem just puts all of their lives at risk. Jesus responds in a very interesting way. Listen to his description beginning in verse 9. 
Jesus answered and said, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was taking a rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. First of all, in this passage, Jesus makes a statement about time. He says that there are 12 hours of daylight within a 24-hour day. And despite what happens in a day, you don't change the reality of time. Time is external to our circumstances. Now, there may be times where you're, you're having fun, so it feels like time is flying by, right? And then there are times when there's not much going on, so it feels like time is dragging on. But those circumstances only influence our perception of time, not the reality of time. There's always 12 hours in a day. That's because the reality of time is ordained by God. And whatever is ordained by God cannot be changed by man. And Jesus knows that there is a specific time for his mission to take place. And his time has not yet come. And so, yes, they can go to Jerusalem and be safe. And as long as his disciples are with him and they are walking in his light, they will not stumble. They will see what is true. The danger is when we walk in the darkness of deception and not in the light. So Jesus explains why they're returning to Jerusalem. You see, the last they heard, Lazarus was sick. And now they understand, based on what Jesus initially says, that he's sleeping. And so they respond by what we would logically think, well, that's good. He needs to rest. If he'll rest, he'll get better. And Jesus goes on and explains, no, you don't understand. Lazarus has died. But remember, death is not the end of the story. God's glory is the end of the story. And so Jesus tells the disciples the reason for his delay. And he says that I have delayed in order that you might believe. It was for their benefit. He wanted to use this event to deepen their understanding, to strengthen their faith in him. Because Jesus knows how much they desperately need the message of this miracle in the days ahead. I love the response of Thomas, who I think gets a bad rap. We know him as Doubting Thomas, right? Kind of the Eeyore of the disciples. But in this situation, I believe he has strong and courageous faith because he has resigned himself to the fact that when they go into Jerusalem, they will not come out alive. He believes. He says, in essence, if they're going to kill Jesus, then they're going to take us too. He tells them specifically, let us go that we may die with him. That's a courageous commitment. Listen how it continues in verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now I want to pause here because this explains why Jesus delayed two days before he came to Jerusalem. 
Because according to Jewish custom, a person was not considered to be dead officially until after the third day. Jesus delayed in order to remove any doubt as to his condition. And so let's continue in verse 18. It says that Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you, Martha, believe this? As we know, Martha's a doer, right? She likes to to get up and go. And so when she heard that Jesus was coming, she got up and went. (laughs) She ran out to meet him along the road. And when she does, she makes a statement to Jesus that is repeated three times in this passage. So it must be important, and we need to pay attention. She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You see, they knew the power of Jesus to prevent death. His life was filled with miracles for those who were sick and diseased. But Jesus wants them to see that preventing death is not the limit of his authority. In fact, God's glory is most evident not in preventing death, but in its power over death. That's why this miracle is so important For the disciples, because shortly after these events, they will see Jesus being crucified on a cross. And then they will take his dead body and they will place it in a tomb. For how long? Three days. They need to know that death is not the end of the story, that God's glory is the end of the story. Because not only does Jesus have the authority to lay down his life, he also has the authority to bring it back again. His authority over sin and death has the power to set us free. And they need to believe, you and I, we need to believe that what is true for Lazarus is true for us if we trust in Christ. So Jesus tells Martha, your brother will rise again. And Martha responds, I think, quite rapidly, yeah, I know, Lazarus will rise again in the last day at the resurrection. She believes in the future hope of God's promise. But Jesus explains to her, Martha, the future hope is a present reality in me. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Because of Jesus Christ, death is not the end of the story. God's glory is the end of the story. Death only introduces us into eternal life. And if we believe in the truth of Christ, that life begins in that moment that we believe. And here's why. Apart from Christ, death is eternal separation from a life-giving relationship with God. 
That's a fact. If we live apart from Him now, we will live separated from Him for all eternity. The wages of sin is death, eternal separation from a life-giving relationship with God. But if we live through faith in God right now, not even death, get this, not even death can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. We simply leave the limitations of this world and enter into the fullness of his glory. Because remember, death is not the end of the story. God's glory is the end of the story. Look how he continues in verse 27. She, Martha, said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews were with her in the house, consoling her, they saw Mary rise quickly, go out, and they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and sang to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I want you to notice how Mary says the very same thing as her sister Martha. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She knew that Jesus had the power to prevent sin or to prevent death. But like her sister, she thought that that was the limit of his authority. Lazarus had been in the tomb four days. He's dead. He's gone. There's clearly nothing that Jesus could possibly do. He looked at her despair. She sat weeping at his feet. Look at his response in verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. In verse 35, Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. We often focus on verse 35, right? The shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. But I think in this context, we need to ask the question, why? Because in verse 33 and verse 38, it says that Jesus was deeply moved, and it goes on to say he was troubled. In the original language, these words describe kind of an agitation, a a deep gut-felt disturbance. So why was Jesus so disturbed by what was happening around him? My first reaction has always been, well, he's weeping with those who weep, right? This is an evidence of his compassion, and I think that's true, but not the whole story. Because I want you to notice how the crowd responded to Jesus' emotion. In a sense, they're saying, oh, look how much Jesus loved Lazarus. He must miss him too. In fact, they repeat what's already been said twice by both Mary and Martha. They said, could he have not kept him from dying? So I want you to think about this. 
after all that Jesus has said and done, after all the miracles and proclamations, he's just told them, before Abraham was, I am. The Father and I are one. Clearly, he's communicating that he's not like anybody else, that he is, in fact, God incarnate. And yet, they still don't understand who he is. I think Jesus is troubled. He's disturbed by their unbelief. Because here's the deal, until they admit their own need for grace and forgiveness in their own life, there is no miracle, including this one, that has the power to change their heart. They need Jesus to do a miracle in their life. And yet they don't believe, and that's why he's troubled. Because he wants them to believe. Look at how he continues in verse 39. Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha objects. She's, the sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Death is not the end of the story. God's glory is the end of the story. And if you believe, if you believe in the truth of who Christ is, then God's glory is at work in your life right now. Just like Lazarus, your life becomes a living testimony of God's redeeming love. And no amount of suffering, no matter how much you might endure, can compare to the fullness of glory that is one day to be revealed in his presence. Why? Because death is not the end of the story. God's glory is the end of the story. But until that day, I do have a concern. And, and here's my concern. I believe that there are too many Christians who have heard the call of Jesus who are still walking around with what I'll call their death clothes on. What I mean by that is they're still covered by guilt and shame. They're still weighed down by bitterness and unforgiveness. They're still imprisoned by fear, defeated by discouragement. But understand, when Jesus calls your name, he wants to set you free. That's why he tells them, unbind him, let him go, set him free. Because if Christ has set you free, you're free indeed. The resurrected life, is not just some future event. It begins the moment you believe. But you have to be intentional about not keeping your grave clothes on. For example, putting away guilt and believing instead that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a promise. Putting away unforgiveness and bitterness and instead, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. 
overcoming fear by knowing that He alone is our rock and our salvation. He's our stronghold, and in Him we will not be greatly shaken. That He is a very present help in time of need. And He's not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and of power and a sound mind. But those are intentional decisions of belief that I think you have to make every single day. And I don't know about you, but here's what I've found to be true in my own life. Those linens that we are wrapped in, in those dead cloths, <laughs> come in multiple layers. And let me explain what I mean. Underneath my issue of fear is an issue of trust. And my lack of trust is, a, is grounded in a desire for control. And my desire for control is ultimately based on a misunderstanding about God because somehow I've lost sight of His sovereign love and grace and the promise that He will work all things together for the good of those who love Him. Do you see all the layers? And if I just remove the first one, I've got several more underneath it and I need to get all the way to the bottom. And so do you. That's why A.W. Tozer says that what comes to mind when you think about God, is the most important thing about you. It's why Jesus tells his disciples, I'm doing this miracle so that you might believe. Because if you believe in the truth of Christ, then the promise of Christ is that he will set you free. But we have to live in that freedom Every single day, removing what is false, putting on what is true. I love how Paul describes it to the Ephesians very vividly. Listen to the language when he says, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Here's what we do. Put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and it's corrupt through deceitful desires. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Put on the new self created for after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Do you see the picture? Put, taking off what is old and putting on what is new, removing the grave clothes and, and clinging to God's promises of truth. Because we only live in that freedom if we are loosed from all the layers. The resurrected life flows out of our identity in Christ. And it is a daily decision put off what is false, and to cling to what is true. Because make no mistake, we live in a world filled with deception. And if you do nothing, that's all you see, and that's what you'll believe. But if you can turn to the truth of God's Word, if you can live in the context of a believing community, if you can pray and seek the Lord, then you will find the freedom that your heart desires in Him. And when our life is hidden in Christ, we become a living testimony of God's redeeming grace and love. And so this morning, we're going to have the privilege of hearing one of those testimonies from my good friend, Kimberly Kennedy. So Kimberly, if you want to come up and share your story of God's redeeming love. Thank you for doing that. Well, it is my privilege to share a part of my story with you today. And I have loved Todd's theme, that death is not the end of the story, that God's glory is the end of the story. And so I hope that you see that in this story that I have to share with you. I was recently told not to view the Bible as a history book 
or a science book or even an ethics book. It includes those things, but the Bible is really God's story, the story he has written to us that we may know him and that we may know his son. And when knowing his son, we will have eternal life with him, but also abundant life right now. So his big story is a story of redemption, of taking what was lost in the Garden of Eden and weaving all of history into this great story of restoration and what will be a new garden and a new heaven. But he's also writing our personal stories, and they have purpose, and they have a part in his grander, overreaching story. And so my story is just a glimpse into what God has done and is doing in my life. But you have a story as well. My mother-in-law has said the greatest adventure is to see God in everything. So may you see God in my story as I share some of it today. I was raised in small town America, Spearman, Texas, in a town so small it only has one red light. I'm the oldest of three. I had 60 people in my graduating class. It was one of the largest classes. And many of those with whom I graduated, I began school in first grade with. My parents are godly, hardworking people who themselves were raised by godly, hardworking people. My brother has said, we weren't introduced to Jesus in our home, but we weren't introduced to our grandmother either. We just always knew her. And that was the truth. We just always knew Jesus in my home. And I realized that that is a sweet part of my story. When I attended college at Texas Tech and heard other stories, I felt a little left out. Like perhaps my story wasn't as dramatic and so it didn't carry the same punch. I never doubted that Jesus was real and that he loved me. I didn't doubt the virgin birth or the Trinity or the resurrection. I trusted what my parents said and they said the Bible was true and so I believed. The simplicity of that faith bothered me as I heard others' testimonies and their dramatic rescue from drugs or broken homes or bad choices, but I now see that simple faith was what wrote the first chapters of my story. I had the sweet gift of an almost idyllic childhood where I knew I was loved, where financial pressures were real and hard work was expected and required, but God was present in our family story. My mother would always say, to whom much has been given, much is required. And I didn't realize that that saying was actually a Bible verse until I began to study for myself, Luke 12, 38. I met Doug at Texas Tech and was grateful that the first chapters of his family story matched mine. He, too, had believing parents who taught him and his siblings the value of faith and of family. So with our shared family's stories of faith, it's kind of ironic that we met in a bar, but that's a story for another day. <laughs> it was a Christmas wedding in 1986 in the small town church in which I was raised that began our story. And after living in Lubbock for five years and then expecting our first baby, Doug was offered a job in Pampa. He graduated from Pampa. He still has a while seven months in Pampa, and I didn't really jump at the opportunity to move to Pampa while seven months pregnant. Our friends and our church, Pampa was where God wrote important chapters in our story. We attended a Bible church there, and I first learned about BSF in Pampa. There had been holes in my beliefs, and those years were invaluable in teaching me basic theology about God's sovereignty and his holiness. I knew Bible stories, but I didn't really know the God who wrote those stories until I learned basic theology in BSF and in that little Bible church in Pampa, Texas, and realized how personal God is in our stories. 
Three of our four children were born while we lived in Pampa. Our home was out in the country within walking distance from Doug's parents and I had, it was the childhood that I had and it was the childhood I wanted to give our kids. The one high school town where everyone goes to the football game even if they don't have kids in the school, they just go because that's the only thing really to do in a small town. And it was a safe place and I wanted that but God had a different story being written. Instead, we moved from Pampa back to Lubbock, which I realize many of you think is a small town, but that's not because you have not ever lived in Spearman or Pampa. And so our move back to Lubbock was really, really brutal for me because it felt like the death of a dream. When we moved from Lubbock to Pampa, after the first five years, I was sad and Doug took off his wedding ring where I had inscribed, Ruth, where you go, I will go. And he reminded me of that. So I like to tell people, be careful what you inscribe. It can come back to haunt you. So he reminded me, and then he also likes to joke that there were heel marks both ways when I dug my heels leaving and I dug my heels returning. And yet what we received in those nine years in Pampa was invaluable. And what we learned as a family through our time in BSF when we returned to Lubbock was also invaluable to our faith and to our stories. Because when Doug and I were rocked by the hardest chapters in our shared story, my son-in-law said, I haven't seen a faith like y'all's. And I could honestly say, well, that faith was built on decades of learning the truth about God found in his word. That didn't happen overnight. Trials reveal what is in our hearts. Trials do not make us. They reveal us. And so when our world was ripped apart, our faith was not. Our only son, Jayton, was 21 years old and a junior at Texas A&M when he crossed the street late one night and was hit by a drunk driver. The policeman banged on our door in the early morning hours of November 21st, 2015. And November 22nd, 2015, Jake went to his forever home and we came home to a story that we did not want to read, much less live out. Many times in scripture, you find the words, but God, and those have become some of my favorite parts found in the stories in the scripture, because what could have destroyed us and broken up our marriage and sent me into a tailspin did not, because of God, but God. Remember, everyone has a story, and some of our stories have really bad and dark chapters, and those chapters are not just about us. They're about those who are watching and reading our stories with us. I never wanted my story to include the earthly death of our only son. But God, in his sovereignty, knew that that would be there. And he allowed that dark chapter, but he gave me so many other chapters to prepare me. As I sat by Jane's bedside, after his last emergency surgery in the, college, in the hospital in College Station, I knew Jake was not going to come home and that he was not going to finish school at A&M, but that God was taking him to his forever home. I had prayed and fasted and cried out to God, and when I sat there as the nurse left holding my son's hand, I knew. And I got up and I washed my face in that little bathroom off of his hospital room. And God very clearly spoke to me 
from David's own words in scripture when he was told that his baby boy was gone. He will not return to me, but I will go to him. Jayton knew Jesus. Because of that, I know where Jayton is. And yes, I miss him every single day. And I will miss him until I see him. But he is alive and he is busy and I will be with him for all eternity. Jesus told his disciples as they grieved the news that he would soon be crucified and leave them. Now is your time of grief, but you will see me again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. John 16, 22. My grief chapters and my story are long and there are more than one. Jade's departure for heaven is not the only loss that our family has written into this story. There are chapters about rejection and pain and hurt and betrayal that are very fresh and actually still being written by God. God is still writing. One author said, as long as you have breath, you have hope. And I recently read, hope is a skill that must be practiced. And I love that. Hope is a skill that must be practiced. My story is in God's hands, and he is the God of hope, and he is able. He is able to bring good from bad, the bad done to me, the bad that I have done to myself, and even to others. Knowing the great author does not exempt us from our part in our story. We have free will and choices and responsibility in how our stories unfold. We have the power at any moment to say stop, this is not how I want my story to end. We have the power to choose joy, to choose hope, to choose to turn our eyes to Jesus. As believers, our stories are not just about us. They are about Jesus and his transforming power in our lives. They matter because as we tell our stories, we're telling the story of who God is and what he can do. God's big story is told in our little stories as we use them to point to him. God has already written the last page of his book, his great storybook for us. And as Billy Graham has said, God wrote the ending of the story and he wins. And in the meantime, our stories are being written and we have a choice. What will people read when they read our stories? Will they read hope? Will they read joy? Will they read trust? Will they read God's glory in our story? I've often said I did not choose the platform that God has given me of pain and loss and now of rejection, but I want to use whatever platform God gives me to point others to him, for his glory is the true end of each story. I'm going to ask you a question. Do you think Lazarus had a story? Can you imagine what the conversations were like after that day? Tell us, Lazarus. What was it like to experience the power of God at work in your life when Jesus called your name? Let me ask you another question. Are you any different than Lazarus? The Bible says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins but you have been made alive together with Christ. And I think we tell that story when we live in God's truth. And 
the more we live in God's truth, the more we have a story to tell. And so let me encourage you to walk out of this place with that commitment in mind. And let me pray for us as we go. Lord, we thank you for your story, your story of redeeming love and grace who forgiveness found in Jesus Christ, our Savior. We thank you that within that big story, there are little stories of how you've reached out to each and every one of us because just like we've heard in the story, you want us to believe. And every day we have that choice of where to put our trust and the truths that we're going to cling to and the deception that we will reject. So Lord, I just pray that we are renewed in our commitment to live that life faithfully as we put our eyes on you who has called our name. And we pray this in your name, our strong and mighty Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Have a great day. Great to see you.